you know, I think Elon said this, take your 10 year plan and try to do it in six months. And you're going to fail, but you'll probably be a lot further than if you'd said, let's make it a 10 year plan. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. If you're a broker or anybody out there that knows of a class B industrial building for sale, we want to hear from you. Our criteria is that we hope that it's between 10 and $75 million in total purchase price. Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including an additional bonus, the ability to co-invest, a piece of the upside, and exclusive partner trips. Last year, we went to Lajitas and we went to Las Vegas, and it was a lot of fun, and we'd love to see you there this year. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. There are a few people on this planet that really motivate me, and Scott, you're one of them. Well, thank you. Scott is a a beast, which we'll get into right now. Uh, We've known each other for quite a while and work with a lot of the same folks, but what you've done is like nothing short of amazing, and we're going to talk about it today. Thank you. Well, I'm glad glad I paid you to say that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 38,000 units by 32 years old. So that's more than 1,000 units a year for every year of your life. (laughs) Uh, And you've made it look, I wouldn't say easy, but it seems like it's just been like supernatural for you to just continue growing. You know, uh, it's weird. It's it's so hard until it's not. And then it just seems so easy. Obviously, rising tide lifts all ships, but... The first, you know, five years of doing it, you know, it was just, it seemed like every pain point was just a, a an ultra challenge. And then, and then all of a sudden you look up and you can just take down 10,000 units and, and your team just executes, uh, you know, seamlessly. So, um, it's, it's been a wonderful ride. Well, we're going to end the, one of the last questions is like, how would you describe kind of your superpowers? Cause it takes somebody to push it that far and we'll get there, but start with the story of you were getting into development. You thought that was the path. And then you got kicked in the teeth and you're like, okay, maybe I'll pivot and do something different, which was value add multifamily. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- value add multifamily has such a, uh, a, a big sticking point these days in the news and, and with investment thesis. But when, when we started in 2012, uh, it was lipstick on a pig. And that was the term I heard a hundred, hundred times over and over and over. Um, and so, you know, backing up to 08, 07, you know, I, I actually got into real estate um, right out of high school to flip houses. Obviously, that was our pending doom. Um, but I did set up a small fund with a, with a 60-year-old man who uh, wanted to uh, kind of bring me under his wing. And uh, I was going to work for free and just help him with, you know, chasing deals. And, uh, you know, he had to go get a job. Uh, I think everything fell apart for him in his own life. 
and uh, that that led me down the path of chasing single family. Uh, once that imploded, uh, I just tell people I read too much Art of the Deal from Trump, and uh, I found myself on LoopNet looking at distressed office towers in, in of all places, Sundance Square, uh, and I'm torn a deal, and the guy says, you know, uh, I think office towers are dead for the next uh, two, three years. You should look at our apartments, and I, I wrote that down um, and you know, kind of went over there and fell in love with the business plan, and development uh, was obviously the sexy, cool thing to do at the time. Um, and I, uh, I, I ran around town putting up to putting land deals together. Um, I had a development JV set up with a couple different groups and just quickly figured out development is a rich man's game yep. and it's slow, slow burning and takes a lot of capital and it's very intensive. And so, um, four years of beating my head against the wall, I said, it's time to figure out something else to do. So lipstick on a pig it is. Didn't you put together a lot of land like in like maybe design district or deep Ellum for like so 12 bucks a foot or yeah. something. Yeah. So funny, <laughs> funny story. We, we own it now. Uh, that exact land, you know, for two years I worked on, it was a development deal of 30 acres, lemon in the tollway, Oaklawn, you know, heart of Dallas today, uh, $22 a foot to the dirt. And I couldn't get an equity partner in the world to, to even pay attention to us. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had Pogue who's, you know, Lincoln property, uh, behind us as the developer and everyone said dollar 20 rents north of tollway you'll never get it you know mind you this is 2010 so yeah. I, I get it then but so you know it was just like man i gotta make a paycheck so I, I i switched out and we moved on eight years later we get a call hey it's available and we <laughs> bought it and now it's value out apartments you don't have to tell me what you bought it for but i'm guessing it's more than 22 it's a hell of a lot more <laughs> and it's worth even you know i mean Gosh, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's been crazy, but yeah, worth a lot more today. All right, so you you kind of get some uh, wisdom that hey, maybe you should start putting lipstick on a pig. It's an easier. What was like the first deal, or when did you say okay, I'm going to start focusing on apartments? Yeah, I'd say it's uh, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Adam Blake. Yep. I was getting tired of reading about how cool he was in the in the Star Telegram. And uh, he'd bought the historic electric building, yeah. value add deal in, in downtown Sundance Square. And I just called him and said, hey, can I take you to lunch? And that was the first time we'd ever met. And, uh, you know, he was a young entrepreneur, came out of TCU here locally. And um, that was really when I kind of started thinking there's something here and I should really figure out how to how to do this type of structure and, and deal. Um, and so I spent probably another year or two really bouncing around between development and trying to find a value a deal. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a deal in South Dallas, 6,000 a door, uh, still couldn't get anybody to do it. And so, you know, deals just kept dying on me and, uh, and, and finally was able to, uh, in 2012, get our very first value deal done in, uh, Denton, Texas, where no one else at the time would go. And we finally were able to get a good enough deal to, uh, get, get it under contract and attract capital. We both have Adam Blake in common. I know. That's how we, I think that's how we all got connected. And, I know. and funny stories, just he connected me to my very first investor. Um, Which so, we're going to talk about. You know. He called me, I will never forget, like, it was, this was 10 years ago, and I wasn't doing, you know, shit. I had a few houses, thought I was great. And he's like, I met this young guy, and I think he's going to be huge. And you kind of hear that story all the time. Oh, this, and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And- I remember like three or four years later, he's like, he just did his, you know, 10,000th unit or whatever. But he really early on, I remember, I will never forget him talking. And maybe you were in North Richmond Hills or 
Denton, and he was like, he's tying up these shitty apartments, he's putting some lipstick <laughs> on them, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, he was envious because of the time he'd, he'd sold his apartments and moved into solar energy. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we <laughs> I, I gotta love him for it, but he, he made a lot more money in apartments, and uh, you know, he we, we kept in great touch, and, and I just always felt like uh, he's just a phenomenal entrepreneur, and he went on to do a lot of other great things. Yep. Um, but he was really kind of my my launching pad for um, really focusing on value add and then connecting me with my, my first investor. Yeah. So it was great. We share that in common. I tell everybody if it wasn't for Adam, I just I don't know how things would have shaken out. Well, yeah, now he's just hanging out on the beach in San Diego, living the life. Was there something early in your life you have to have confidence to be as young as you are. And it's maybe something we share also is just thinking at an early age, like I can do it. it did you grow up that way? Is it something like you remember? It's like, yeah, well, it's made me confident. I, I think, you know, I've got, I'm the oldest of four boys. Okay. Um, so there is a little bit to birth order. I think, you know, I just, I, I always a little bit, I wouldn't never say cocky. It's, it's definitely just a confidence. And I was a terrible student, so you know I was I was literally bottom ten percent of high school class. I was in detention all the time. I had to do summer school every year of high school. So I, for all intents and purposes, I was nothing remarkable at all in sort of education. But I always felt like I love to learn. I'm extremely curious. I'm extremely competitive, and I pretty much understand that if if someone out there can do something, why can't I do it? Yeah. And it's a simple concept, but. I feel like people have fear paralyze them and what we do either as entrepreneurs, finance, real estate, whatever it may be, tech, we're not splitting atoms here. It's just the confidence in yourself to go do it and take the risk. And, and I tell people, you know, my biggest advantage was starting so early because the things I did, the risks I took, I probably didn't even understand how much I could have screwed up my life if they went the other way. Yep. Um, you know, I was, borrowing from JP Morgan Chase. I was borrowing my student loans uh to use them as pursuit costs for real estate deals. Uh and then I would, you know, I would I would pay the school with my credit card to get in proof of enrollment and then I'd send the proof of enrollment to JP Morgan so they wouldn't call my loans due. <laughs> and then I would cancel and get my money back on my credit card and I did that for four years. I got a hundred grand in student debt at twenty percent interest rate. That's not for big forgivable in chapter eleven personal bankruptcy. And uh, you know, it, it just kept disappearing on me chasing deals and and uh finally it worked out, but my gosh, you know, if I'd have told someone at twenty to do that, it it would have never happened. Yeah, it's not the recipe for everybody. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't do that. Don't ever do that. <laughs> all right, so Denton comes along. What did you see in that deal that was like, all right, this is the first one and and how'd you get it done? Yeah, so first deal, 184 units. Um, you know, I had a I had an uh, an older partner at the time, and uh, you know, we after looking at a lot of deals, you know, you started to kind of figure out what what went, what could kill you and what was you know what to look for. And so, we found a really underoccupied deal that needed to be transitioned from like student housing, so it was had a ton of vacancy, um, and we were able to time it right with an investment group who. Uh, the investor had sold his company or a big piece of it, a majority piece. So he was liquid and was looking to also bring and raise some capital for, you know, what they call private equity real estate. And the deal needed about, you know, seven a door was our budget. Um, we totally missed on all of our assumptions. We, we, we were buying a 60s flat roof chiller deal and we <laughs> forgot to budget to possibly replace roofs, possibly replace the chiller. 
Uh, and we most importantly forgot to budget for interest carry on a construction loan for transitioning from student to traditional. Um, So we screwed up everything we possibly could. But what I did every day was I drove from Dallas to Denton, 5 a.m. I'd get up, I'd go up there, and I lived that site every single day of my life. I remember I was buying baby powder, you know, because June, that was when all the students were moving out. And, you know, I'm up there every single day punching out units, getting them turned as quickly as we could in the, in the dead of the heat. But it was the best thing for me um, and the best education because I learned how everything plays out on site. I, I figured out how all the tenants work. I figured out what you get paid for on the value add improvements. I figured out where you can cut corners for cost purposes and, and you know, truly the kind of value add. Um, and I figured out how to, how to manage an asset on site from the ground up. And, and that's where we started our general contractor. You know, after three GCs that kept lying and not doing what they say they're going to do, I said, you know, screw it. We're going to drown. Um, we're literally going to lose this deal to the lender. Uh, we are 60% occupied and, and no end in sight to our bleeding. And so I said, I'm, I'm going to hire some painters and I'm, I'm going to make it happen. And, you know, I, at least I did everything from lease apartments to move people in to punch out the units to manage the, the, the rent roll uh, and, and just figured it out. And, uh, you know, Rising tide lifts all ships, like I said. Rent started climbing a little bit. You know, occupancy started climbing. We were able to stabilize, got out at a good cap rate, and put a win on the board as quickly as we could. And that's what kind of launched into the next deal. Was there like something in that deal where eventually you, you it kind of clicked and you're like, all right, I think I kind of figure out like how this business is going to work? I'd say that uh, it took until about the third deal to really feel like I was starting to understand just the, the small pain points that make a deal work yep. or don't work. And today, like, you know, the, the physical asset of nature of an asset doesn't scare me at all. Um, I pretty much can be on site in 30 minutes and know if we're you know going to have some challenges or not. You know, there's a lot more things today that worry me from a more macroeconomic perspective than, you know, being very comfortable on site with, uh, with a physical deal. Um, but I think that's where a lot of people can get really, you know, Pennywise pound foolish, you know, and, and in the micro weeds and, and just not paying attention to, to what's really important. And all that matters is leasing and rents, um, you know, and, and being in the right markets. And, you know, I always say just good leasing and, and high rent solves a lot of our issues. Um, and so the one thing that we start with on every underwriting is just where are the rents today and where can we take them? Yep. Don't worry about anything else until we figure that out and we feel 110% confident that we have it down. Um, so, How often are you creating the new comp, though? Like when you think about where Never. we can take them. So yeah. It's always, there's already rents out there that we know we can get to. <clears throat> don't, yeah. My investment team knows, don't bring me a deal if you're going to try to be the market rent leader. Yep. If you want to try to tell me that our 1991 deal is going to compete with new builds, just go ahead and throw your memo in the trash. It's just, it's a bad business plan. Our whole our whole investment philosophy is target off market, target the deals that are underperforming everyone else, figure out why they're underperforming, and make sure it's not for a reason that's legit. Um, and and if not, start getting aggressive. And um, you know, I I buy something that all you got to do is take it to market to make good money. Right. Okay. What are illegitimate reasons why properties are not performing. So you said like there's legit reasons why they could not be performing, like the chiller's gone and nobody has hot or, you know, hot or cold air mm-hmm. or hot or cold water. 
But in your case, like what are illegitimate reasons why most people overlook and you're like, no, this could be turned around really quickly? I think people don't fully understand that, you know, unlike an office tower or an industrial building, I mean, a multifamily deal, 350, 400 units, it's like a living, breathing human almost. I mean, it has so many things that are required to kind of all work together from the electrical MEP to leasing office. Um, You know, it's, it's tenant service for 500 residents. I mean, any one of those things starts to kind of fade and you get into this kind of cascading effect of, you know, now cash flows aren't great and, and the partnership already was over leveraged. So now the general partners start kind of bickering and fighting. Um, then the manager quits because their budgets aren't getting approved. Now they have a big AR balance, so they're getting blown up by the vendors. I mean, it's just, there's all these nightmarish scenarios that play out. Um, and so like one thing we look at is just landscaping. It's a very simple, easy tell of a, if a deal is performing or not. Yeah. The first thing that people start cutting is those nice new pretty flowers every you know quarter um, and so you can start kind of seeing signs of not distress, but people who are not wanting to redeploy capital in the asset. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, um, you know, we, we, you kind of just know, but also with the rent movements we've seen today, a lot of it's reset the floor for what we consider, you know, the, the stabilized market. And so, you have a lot of REITs out there. You have a lot of 1031 owners. You have a lot of family office owners all focused on cash flow and we're total return value add people. So, you know, what's, what's been interesting is like in 2019, or I'm sorry, 2020, 2021 and 2022, the rents have moved so fast that if you're not on the ball month to month, quarter to quarter, and sometimes week to week, you've missed 15, 20% of in-place rents. And that alone could be a value add for us. So it, it may be working well. It's just, you've got an owner that's, you know, messing around in Cabo, not paying attention you could you could easily pick up 10 20% value just just by being in the right place right time well you're in the right place at the right time most i mean you've i think you've bought I'm gonna, i had my notes but like 105 deals mm-hmm. and you're not participating in all these auctions to win these deals you're getting them so to the extent you'll share like what is your how do you think about creating an opportunity and buying a deal like how are you f- is it literally being able to show up at a property and go, there's depth, like the owner is obviously thinking about the property this way. It might be a time to buy. Like, how are you sniffing these out? So everyone, you know, a lot of people think that buying off market means I'm just calling every owner in town direct, right? right. And I can tell you 100% wholeheartedly that that is an absolute disastrous waste of your time. Yep. Um, and I think people take that the wrong way. We hire people who we tell off market, I, all I see is they start blasting otherwise to all the different owners. You know what I mean? I mean, I get probably 20 calls and offers a week, and I don't think I open one email. Yeah. I just delete, delete, delete. The only emails I'll open from anybody is through a broker relationship that I know and I trust who's going to say, I vouch for this group. They're good buyers. This is a great offer based on what we're doing in the market. Yep. And even then, sometimes I'll most of the time just ignore it. But I at least pay it pay attention. So, you know, what we focus on is building out those relationships. We want a couple in each market and we want to identify the assets we we have kind of circled as targets. Yeah. But I always offer through our broker relationships and I respect the crap out of the brokers. Yeah. A lot of people don't treat brokers very well and yeah. it blows my mind. They control the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. 
And, you know, my, some of my best friends are brokers. They make a lot of money. They're very smart. Um, and if you are, if you do what you say you're going to do and you make their life easy, you will get a lot of deal flow. There's a lot of people in real estate. I know it's shocking to everyone, but there's a lot of ego in this business. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's mind blowing when I'm on the sell side or the buy side, just seeing how the other group treats the brokerage community or, you know, their, you know, investment team or lawyers or whoever. And we take a very different approach. We respect all those relationships. They're the lifeline of, um, of our company and our deal flow. So we want to respect and make everyone's life as easy as possible. So we're your next call. Do you find that you're buying the, you know, from the same seller quite often now once you've executed enough? Yeah. I mean, uh, my whole thing is if, if we've got one deal going with a group, I want to know everything they own across the country yep. and let's start pinging. Yep. Um, you know, and I'd tell you nine times out of time, nine times out of 10, something else miraculously shows up and, and, and it might be more than one. It might be even a portfolio, a subset portfolio, um, you know, all types of stuff. So you were in the lipstick in a pig era where value add multifamily in 2022, everybody can talk about it. It's yeah. easy that the new incumbents, you know, they make it seem easier than it is, but you've seen it from when it wasn't sexy to where it is. I know you were at a different stage in your career early on, but like how much has the landscape changed over the last 10 years? Uh, I mean, it is, it has become so institutionalized and, and the metrics, I mean, you know, CoStar wasn't really even CoStar 10 years ago yeah. and the data available back then you had to basically wait until, you know, an MPF report came out at the end of the quarter to know where rents were sitting. Um, you know, and, and like LRO and Rainmaker and all the day-to-day -day kind of rent technology we have, um, you know, prop tech wasn't a word, that's for sure. And so what's, what's crazy is just, you know, we track so much data now. We've built out an entire software for, for our company um, that when we're going to close a deal, I mean, everyone always says like, you're the crazy money, you're the crazy aggressive buyer, and that's why everyone wants to sell to you. But I mean, we have a very high conviction and what we're doing is not a, it's not guesswork. It's, yeah. it's all extremely proven and process oriented. Um, and I think that's why if you look over 10 years, we have a very, very consistent track record of putting in dollars, getting 30% revenue bump and about a 50% in a Y bump. And that's, that is the math. That's the clockwork. And it doesn't matter if, you know, we used to pay maybe six caps, seven caps, but we were pushing spread. And so, you know, we'd buy at a five cap, take it to a seven cap. Today we're buying at a three and we're taking it to a five and selling at a four. It's yep. it's just the spread game. And so that part has not changed at all. Um, what has changed is just the institutional liquidity in the marketplace um, and the competitive set. Y you, you used to go to market and hope that you might get two or three real buyers. And now if you're not getting 20 LOIs at, you know, best and final, you feel like you failed. So, yep. um, it's a great good thing on the sell side, but it's it's extremely competitive on, on the buy side. And then operationally, you know, I just feel like people have become uh, extremely intelligent about how to extract value. And so you got to be careful on thinking you can do things better than the previous owner. You got to really understand why they're selling and, and where their failures were and, and making sure you can do better. One of the most impressive things and honestly was a huge inspiration for us to, to get laser locked in on just doing industrial was your focus. And it says on your website, it's like, this is all we do. Yep. 
was that by design from the beginning? Did you just kind of look back over five years and go, oh, shit, this is all we've done. Maybe we should just do more of it? You know, I think it's um, it, it's it, we had that conversation. I think we were sitting at the golf club one like five years ago. And and, you know, you guys did a, a bunch of really cool stuff. Yeah. And it was office towers and some master plan communities and some development of this. And and, you know, I was kind of jealous. But at the same time, you were kind of looking at me like, man, that's such a pain in the ass trying to be an expert at everything. And and it's just kind of grown over the years of people like the sector-specific investment, to, you know, kind of focus. Yep. Um, and as we raise money, you know, we hear it all the time of people who are frustrated because they put money with an, L, you know, an, an operating partner or a general partner to do uh, multifamily, and they're out trying to also source South Beach, Miami hotels. Yep. And, you know, they're putting in a development deal down in Austin for, you know, industrial, whatever, right? So... Um, we just kind of kept hearing that recurring theme from investors and decided, let's just be expert at one thing and one thing only and and make sure that we also not only from an expertise on the on the execution side, but I want every broker in town when they think, oh gosh, I have a I have a live deal that needs a response in 24 hours and it needs a ton of capital and it needs hard money. And, you know, all these things that are that are usually challenging and problematic for a big investment allocator, who do I call? And I want to be that call every time. And and that's where we've built our reputation is, you know, I'm okay having my balls in a vice with earnest money because I know we'll close and we'll vet it very, very quickly. But, you know, we get deals that I think, you know, we had a deal in Phoenix, a uh, guy owned it 40 years and Phoenix, the hottest market in the country. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he was given a price that to him was crazy. Well, he's owned it 40 years. To us, it was like you're selling this thing a hundred doors short, um, and you know. But he wanted five million bucks of earnest money released day one to be confident in his 1031 up leg, and and because he couldn't afford to have all that stuff go south on him for tax purposes. Not a lot of people do that, but hey, we know we're going to close. We know we got the relationships and the capital and the know-how, and sure thing. So um, you have institutional scale and size, but you don't have institutional red tape. Right, right. You don't have a, a an investment committee of six. Uh, you don't have to go to the fund LPs for approval to put out, you know, uh, earnest money going firm. Um, you know, there, there's so many, there's so much red tape around these mass out, alloc- you know, a- allocators of capital. You know, where they win is they go buy, you know, resource REIT uh, and can put, you know, hundred, you know, billion dollars of equity out at a time. Um, but in the institutional world of buying a hundred million dollar deal, you kind of fall into this. Too big for the private allocators, but too small for the big boys. And so we've kind of just sat right there in the middle market, and, and that's kind of where we plan to stay. So like if we were just taking that Phoenix deal where he wants $5 million day one, to, to close the loop on just like the focus part, if you and I were both given that opportunity, I know what you know, I know what I know, you know what you know, I'm going to have to spend 30, 60 days calling everybody, is this even real, fact-checking it. Whereas you might spend 60 minutes and be like, okay, we're good. Like in that, what does your mind go through in those 60 minutes? It's like, uh, and it's probably more than that, but what level of due diligence have you done besides fifth or, you know, 10 years of working on this where you're like, I'm good, let's go. Yeah. Um, uh, as I stated, it's, it literally starts with rents. So I, I start there. If, if the rents in the pocket are, are not what I want, just to back in, because we're all pro forma stabilized buyers. I don't really care what my entry cap is. Right. Um, so I start there. If that checks the box after kind of digging in, then we move into supply. And that means that they're low enough. Yeah, the, the spread is there to kind of get Got us it. excited to at least go through the modeling. Right. 
Um, if that's there, we, 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 move, we move forward. Then I check supply because supply is the killer of all deals for us. Um, we play in all growth markets, you know, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Carolinas, Georgia. They're all markets that over a 50, 100 year period, we build ourselves into a recession. Um, obviously demand has been off the chart this last decade, but it does, it happens. Houston, we learned our lesson. That's, we tried to get smart and cute with it and supply is just, it's too easy to build down there and it's tough. Um, and so that's kind of the second thing we look for. Um, then obviously we start trying to figure out just sales comps to, to back into what we think it's worth. Um, and you know, from there, then we start requesting financials and, and we don't even, I'd say nine times out of 10, I don't really need your financials to kind of know where I'm pegging it. I might move the meter two, three, 4%, but, um, you know, I can get you an offer kind of before I've even looked at anything. And then after that, I get my team on site, make sure I'm not missing anything physical, uh, or locationally. But, um, you know, it is, it is literally a 24 hour process. If you bring us a deal, you know, uh, doesn't matter if it's, you know, we put a eight pack portfolio together and, you know, 850 million bucks took us all of, you know, four or five days. Um, and it's just, it's just market expertise, the right relationships, um, you know, and, and having a vertically integrated company that has its own GC, you know, we have our GC license in all the states we operate in. Um, so we'll deploy all of our subs on site, tighten up our budget, uh, get our asset managers on site who all they do is value add multifamily. So they know exactly what to look for, sign off on operational budget, make sure the capital stack's good to go. And, rock and roll. All right. We're going to spend like the next segment on, let's just pretend we're all chasing a deal. Yeah. We got the 5 million. The, the guy said, I'm in, take my 5 million. You take the 5 million. What does S2 do, especially in another market? What happens from then to closing? Yeah. So from, I mean, <clears throat> we usually have 45 to 60 days. Okay. Um, you know, that's, that's the off-market world. They want hard earth money, and they want you to waive all contingencies as fast as possible and close and, and you know, rah-rah. So usually within a week, we turn PSA, but during PSA negotiations, we're getting updated title survey phase one. We're going through all of their diligence on the Dropbox. We're checking the box on our full checklist. Um, and before we even have PSAs, I usually want to feel comfortable. I've already got the capital put together. Yeah. Um, so we've already had calls, you know, out of 75 deals, I've done two, I've used two equity groups, Pennybacker and Trinity. And so, yeah. you know, having those relationships, I'm always kind of like a little bit leery of people who, who've done like 50 deals and they have 40 equity groups. Yeah. Why does anybody want to keep investing with you? That's the first question. Yeah. So our, our thing is, you know, rinse and repeat. And I know exactly if it's this type of deal, this group wants it. And if it's this type, this group wants it. And sometimes there's some overlap, like the fund might be out of money or they're raising, or, you know, this group already committed too much. Um, so then we might sprinkle in a few of our other groups, but so, so after we've kind of knocked out the diligence, it's all cap stack related, making okay. sure our assumptions are vetted. Um, I start calling directly my lenders. I don't circumvent the debt process. I like to use debt brokers. Yep. I like them to run the process, but I'll call my close relationships first, make sure Hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you see in the markets? Good to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Bridge then, debt or long-term debt when you buy? All shorting, all, all short-term floating. Okay. Um, you know, one of the managing directors at Starwood told me one time that fixing is for suckers. And I, I totally agree. I mean, we tried to get Cuton's fixed rate debt in 2017 and 18, and, you know, it was the worst decision ever, even though we thought we were 
locking in the lowest terms ever at three nine. Um, you know, the stuff we floated at a one eighty spread heading into COVID turned into a one point eight percent floating rate loan. Um, and what you notice over and I won't divert too much on this, but what you notice is just as rates rise, spreads tend to compress and especially in this environment, there's just so much money chasing mortgage backed securities and CLOs and such. Um, that I think it's probably what's going to happen in this next run. So, yep. um, but you know, so after that, you know, we, we pretty much believe by PSA signing in five to seven days, equities done, debts done, physical diligence is done. Um, then it just becomes walking the units and fine tuning budget. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure obviously we don't miss anything like, uh, like a flood insurance or whatever, but usually that's all vetted before PSA. And physical DD on site is when you're when you're buying 400 units, you walk in all 400, and you just walk. We are, yeah. we are. It's more of a check the box. Like I, I can just tell you that at least today, right? Like maybe in 2012, 2013, it, it meant a lot more to be on site. You might find all the copper was stripped, all the electrical panels panels were gone. You know, we bought some really hairy kind of foreclosure stuff where just anything and everything was at play. So those were a little different today. There's been so much money put in the space that in four years, probably now, I, I don't think we've ever walked an apartment project and said, ooh, didn't expect that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's a box. It's got walls and a fridge. And and from our perspective, we're going to replace all of it. So what do I care if I walk in and the flooring is a little rough? Yep. Eh, it doesn't matter. That probably just means the rents can go higher. So. Well, you said you said it, when you walk on site in thirty minutes, you can kind of tell if you're dealing with like a lemon or not. Yeah, 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 you can. You'll start seeing facade cracks, and you'll start seeing how the windows are separating, and you'll start seeing how the drainage kind of goes. And those are things you kind of you just learn. Yeah, those are expensive. They don't generate a lot of rent, you know, premium uh, by fixing them. So that's where you got. That's where you got to be careful. You just you know how to cover your ass a little better. You've done a masterful job of repositioning this stuff. So you always have your new sign. I could probably say a couple of them. You've got the bright colors. You've got the the um, clubhouse looks good. Does that part does that part start before you close, or is that kind of the first night? Because this is we're moving quick. Forty five days goes by quick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we as soon as we know a deal's being made, we engaged our design team, branding, signage, okay. construction. And so that by the time we close, I want all paint schemes. I want all the design, branding, logos. I want it all done on site. We're throwing up new paint. I mean, IRR is strictly time, right? right? So, you know, everyone says, you know, oh, your tracker is so great. I mean, it's not because we're so smart. We're just really fast and we yep. get stuff done cheap. Uh, you know, we have a lot of scale. We don't really tinker. You know, I, I laugh when I meet syndicators or something who have five different interior finish pans. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell does that get you other than a headache? Yep. Uh, we have, you know, you'll see it over like the 10 years. You'll see like what deals were done from S2 from like 2012 to 2016. Then you'll see the 16 to kind of 19 stuff. And then now you'll see kind of like the latest refresh. But when we refresh our interior branding or exterior, it's like rolls out across all assets. Yeah. And we've just decided like this for right now is what works. We buy a ton of it. We price it in really cheaply. And then our subs all get paid basically per unit per floor plan. You make a little on one floor plan because it was easy. You make a little on the you make a little less on the other. Maybe this project, eh, sorry, we're a little over budget. You're not gonna make much money. Yep. But I promise you, you're gonna go over to Florida and do thousand units and you're gonna make a killing. Um and that's just kind of the 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 give and go there. It's and it and it works. Well, okay. So the the value it's like 
you know, new appliances, laminate, hardwood flooring. It's the typical thing. Yep. But you just said you've redone it every, you know, few years. Is that because you all get an insight that's like, hey, we can do this better? Or is it just the market saying what was cool in 2016 is not cool in 2019? Yeah. I mean, it's a combination of what's available for for kind of return on cost. You know, yeah. uh, you know, if it's super new and super expensive, we might not get the rent push. But but generally, you know, we try not to let our ego get in the way because we we tend to want to make things as nice as what we live in. And you got to remember, you're providing a workforce housing kind of need. Um, and so you want to do as good of a job as you need to do to get the return. Uh, but all we do is track development and we'll go walk new development stuff and see what's kind of in style. What's cool. What do we like? Maybe, you know, take a piece of it and put it here and say, OK, how they're doing these backs. I mean. The guy, whoever, whoever owned that white sparkly granite, I mean, just killed it. <laughs> that is everywhere. And so we decided, you know, basically late, early last year, like it's time to move on from that. It's, it's too cookie cutter. And, and so, you know, we've got some new stuff, but it's really just following the development trends. Yeah. Back to you, you're, you've closed. Now we've closed on this gentleman that we gave $5 million day, uh, day one. Yep. We close. What is the first we can go through 90 or first 180 days look like from the day we close day we close you want to like you notice all the tenants day one hey i'm scott yep, and yep, here i am yeah i mean it's more like i'm i'm michelle and you know our our management company is kind of showing up taking over but the one thing we really want to do is is get rehab moving as fast as possible yeah. so that when they get their renewal notice and it's an increase on their price right they feel the value of it. Yep. Um, you know, you'll lose so much occupancy if you just start giving out huge notices with, you know, the same old stuff. So, um, you know, it's a, it's an art. It's really not a science to, to rehab. We've got to do, we've got to do two things. We've got to renovate hundred percent of the units in two years, which is our kind of math and goal on the pro forma. And we got to do all the exterior and amenities in nine months. Okay. Um, so if we're behind schedule on anything, you know, that's a problem. Um, and so, you know, goal is always refinance end of year two, heading into year three. And our track record is basically refinance out about 75% of the equity. Um, and so that two year is a, is a, is a huge hit the ground running. We need all those units turned. And in the first year, we're going to need to kind of achieve about 40% of that growth through unrenovated rents. Okay. Um, so we don't always just turn all the units because they take too long and you'll drive your vacancy down. So you've got to kind of do this delicate tightrope walk of getting renewals up. You know, renewals have a cap on them. People are just aren't going to pay 30% more. But you can move people out and do quick, easy turns and get 25% pop on that unrenovated unit. Um, and so we basically go through the rent roll and figure out who's been who, who's been kind of skirting the system, paying, you know, four or 500 bucks below. Yeah. Those are the first ones that are probably going to go. And then, you know, usually have the roughest units and, and they need to be upgraded. Um, so those will be completely renovated and turned. Then we'll find the person that just moved out because they're moving jobs and they're moving cities. They might just need a quick paint. So we don't turn those units. Um, and then you kind of just balance of trying to push rent about 15% kind of in place rent roll the first year. Um, while all the amenities and exterior and, and, and leasing office and pool, all that gets done. Um, and then when you really start to see the push is kind of that year two, post refi year three. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's the general. All right. I'm not letting you off the hook. This is fascinating. So you got 400 units. It really, it's like a little city. Mm -hmm. So let's just say you buy it and there's, 
I don't know, 30 vacant units the day you close. Yep. Do those get hit first? Probably about half get hit Why for a full other? rehab. Okay. Well, because what's going to end up happening is I'm already looking at the kind of lease expiration for the next 90 days. And I'm saying, hey, I'm pushing rents on these units. It's probably 300 bucks after I renovate them, let's say. Okay. I know that I'm going to have some market issues because we're not fully renovated on the exterior amenities, office, all that stuff. So I'm going to lease slower at the beginning. Got it. So I need to get some ready product that I can just fill up cheaper um, and keep my occupancy up because I'm probably going to lose 8 to 10% here over the next 90 days because people aren't going to renew at my rates. Got it. So, you know, it's kind of like what I said. You just, you got to fill them up to bring them down. And by doing that, you push the rents on the front end up. And then you can kind of get access to the real low payers. And then the people that are closer to market, you just kind of let them hang out there. Got it. Um, and then, and then you know, what we try to offer up is more of like a hotel option of move out for a little bit, I'll, you know, move into this unit, and we're going to renovate and move back at your new rate. And a lot of times, two or 300 bucks for what we do, people people take it. Um, and especially in today's environment, you know, everyone reads the headlines. Everyone's terrified to, like, go find a new apartment. They don't right. know where they're going to go, if it's going to change. How much, And they're still going to pay a ton of rent. So, yeah, yeah. How long does a turn take, like a full turn? Six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks if you're doing the full deal. <clears throat> yeah. And we, that we, includes? Yeah, I mean, everything. It's cabinets, appliances, backsplash. You know, we're doing a lot of tub surrounds. Sometimes we're doing walk-in stand-up showers, uh, closet imp- improvements, all lighting packages, um, baseboards, you know, I mean, everything. Um, so we want to kind of look at it like, you know, uh, obviously you might be in a 1990s project, but once you feel like you're in your your unit, your box feels like any other box would if you were in a new development deal. Um, and and hopefully we want to try to keep that spread three or four hundred bucks below. On those like four hundred units, are you like okay? You're closing, and I I know that you're not the person anymore. Going hey, it's Scott. <laughs> I'm here. Uh, but the team has let the 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 residents know we're here. We're about to improve your property, improve your life. Do you? Give people, it's like, uh, I know your lease isn't up for nine months, but would you like to start talking now? Or are you typically just talking to people once you're getting close to renewal? We usually, it starts kind of 120 days out. Okay. You know, and and we track rents in by unit and floor plan week by week. We have a long call. We're asset managers. I mean, we're going through every single unit. And what we think last week we got, what we can get this week, where those rents are going to move to, you know, if we're anticipating maybe a summer bump, do we start incorporating that? Are we seeing kind of a, a, a maybe a, an eviction trend that we need to be wary of? And so let's start lowering those rents. I mean, it's a it's a constant, fluid, day by day, week by week discussion with these tenants. You know, and it's it's hard. It's you got to you you know, asset managers and, and analysts and all these they're all finance majors, so they're all just cranking through a million different data points on these things. But then you got to communicate this to a manager who's then got to communicate to a, a leasing agent who's then got to go explain you know how to kind of maximize the value and and get these tenants, you know, sign up at different varying rates. And that's, that's the challenge. And that's where, that's where having one strategy within the multi-sector has really proven to be strong for us because a lot of these people have been with us a long time. They move sites and they start to get a feel for why and how we do things yep. um, versus, you know, being, and it's why we don't third party manage, you know, I don't want another owner telling our team how they want to do things. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't want you kind of having to guess if, Oh, was I supposed to do it this way? Or, you know, oh, this guy wanted cash flow. So we're not really supposed to be pushing renewals and and it just throws the whole system into a loop. We have we have a kind of a a set way to do things. And do you actually want to get through all in two years, get every unit updated? Or if somebody was like, 
hey, I'm paying a thousand. I'll just pay eleven hundred, but don't do anything. Yeah. You like do you treat that as an so equal to the person that goes, I'll pay you thirteen hundred, but redo it all. Well, we all live in this world of, you know, compressed cap rates basically pay you for the future value. So right. You know, if market's three cap and you've done nothing to the property, you're probably going to get two and a half. So yeah. we take all that into account. Uh, you know, if if the goal is to f- turn the asset quickly, we might uh, we might do 30%, 40% of the units and then start, you know, over the next 12 months after it's kind of done, start really pushing those unrenovated yeah. um, and, and letting that saturate. Because like I said, it, it's hard to capture occupancy and maximizing rents on these rehabs. Uh, while things are still constantly in flux where you're moving people out, but you're renovating. And so if you kind of let it sit for a minute, let it play out, you tend to get more value. But then, you know, you've got this embedded upside because you're only 40% renovated or whatever. And so then you get a better cap rate. So that's something we just have to look at kind of week by week, month by month. And, you know, everybody's kind of dealing with this, but even for projects maybe you bought right before COVID or during COVID, like, hey, we're going to do our best to raise rents, you know, 20, 30%. And then they just raise themselves yeah. without you doing anything. Yeah. As an owner, do you still think, hey, let's keep with plan? Or it's like, we got our 30 and we hardly even did anything. No, I mean, we look at it like we got 30 without doing anything. Should we be getting 50 if we yeah. do something? And, and you know, I'd say that is really the case. I mean, I think we were one of the first to get buying again in COVID. We, we closed on a three-pack in June of 2020. And, you know, basically we looked in March, April, May and said, you know, everyone kept reading this ty- this headline and it was driving me insane, like 90% of rent collection, 92% rent collection. I got news for you. We never collect 100% of rent. It's, yeah. that's, that is just what it is. It's, it's always 90, 1% bad debt or so, half a percent moves out and just evicted, but the rest rolls to the next month and then you got to grind it out to collect it. And then they catch up because of whatever. And so we were like, you know, hey, cash flows are good. Rents are good. Government's basically backstopping us on all this. And, uh, oh, by the way, I can buy stuff at a five and a half or a six cap and I can borrow, you know, floating from Freddie at one eight. I'm walking into deals with a 15 cash on cash. I mean, it was the easiest underwriting we've ever seen. Um, and we ran all different scenarios on how we get hurt on that and just felt like people got to live somewhere and people got to, and I wish it lasted longer because all we got was basically into eh, October, November, and then all of a sudden, and I told a few people this, my phone was blowing up off the hook from people that had never invested in multifamily, but had billions of dollars in capital in San Fran, office towers, hotel towers, um, institutional capital out of New York. And and it kind of just made me think there might just be a little bit of a capital flow trend coming this way. And, and I think that's going to compress cap rates quite a bit now. I never, ever expected what we saw today, but... Um, we pretty much felt like it was time to get going and, and that's what we did. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. You know, your, your, your tenants are your customers, but your real customers are your investors. And the real estate business, the lifeblood is the ability to have capital. It's an expensive game and being able to treat them um, 
you know, like royalty. And when you have a lack of resources or you're smaller, it's very tough to be able to report in a way that, again, those high net worth individuals are expect are used to seeing. And so for years, we had either tried building stuff from scratch. It never worked. We would try hiring these companies that, that wanted to charge us a quarter million dollars a year for investor reporting. And it just never worked. And when we found Juniper, um, it aligned with our mission to provide our investors not only great returns, but a great experience in achieving those returns, which goes back to transparency, communication, their ability to know where their money is. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. Let's finish the construction part. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of said early on that, you know, when the first deal you ever did wasn't going well, you were on site and you picked up some paintbrushes and got a crew and you got going. And, you know, from the outside looking in, I think a big part of your quote unquote secret sauce is how quickly you can get this done and at the cost. So to the extent you'll share what separates you on the construction side, then call it your competitive set. What are you doing differently than most people can achieve? Yeah, I you know I've had the same subcontractor since our very first deal, um, you, literally, and the guy keeps having a new brother every time I talk to him. But yeah. it's uh, <laughs> it, it, literally uh, he, he was his name's Rojo. He was painting our cabinets and spraying our bathtubs, you know, with the resurfacing in the first deal. And this was at the time that I'd fired three GCs, and we were heading into the summer, and I you know I just didn't know what I was going to do, and I just I grabbed him and said, hey can you do floors? Uh, because that was the one thing I couldn't figure out. I couldn't find anybody for doing these uh, floors we were doing. And he's like, oh yeah, no problem. I can do it. And the next day he shows up. He's like, there's my two brothers, uh, Jesus and, and Rojo. And they, they do the floors and, and literally save my ass, do it for cheaper than I was getting it done. Um, and the only one it was, I want to be paid every week in, in cash and, you know, let's go. Um, and so that was like the first time that they stepped up we, we became, you know, we developed a great relationship and I just kind of kept using him to expand our different resources and product, um, and teach us, you know, the best ways to do different things within kind of that industry. Um, and, you know, so from there we were able to kind of bring our own teams in, teach them that, um, you know, we knew what everything cost. We knew where he sourced all the materials from. Um, and we were able to start kind of building up mass purchasing power, put it all in a warehouse and start storing and kind of developing our own system for that uh, and and kind of develop these rehab kits to, to drop off into units. Um, and then the labor source, you know, is obviously the big delta, but um, with with our labor, we, we pretty much figured out they all are coming here from various cities, various countries. They're here on a, you know, a visa or whatever it may be. And they're they're here to work. They want to work for nine months and they want to go back home and they're going to take the money with them for a little bit. And so we were able to say, okay, you're going to be in Jacksonville for nine months. You're going to finish all the exteriors. You're going to finish all the amenities. You're going to blow out these apartments fast as you can. You're going to make a bunch of money in nine months and you're going to go back and then you're going to come back in, in two or three and you're going to be ready to go in Charlotte. Yep. Um, and, you know, it was just like this very consistent uh, supply. It uh, will also work product for them uh, and, and a very consistent paycheck. And one of the things we, we figured out early on was, these um, subcontractors and laborers are so used to getting jerked around when it comes to payday. Yep. We took the complete opposite approach. Stuff 
you know, if maybe something was, you know, broken or maybe manager, it was their fault, whatever. We're going to pay you what you're going to pay you. Now we need you to come back and fix it. And yeah. we need you to come back and do the next product, but I'm not going to withhold pay and I'm not going to start trying to beat you up or I'm not going to fire up the job. Like it was a respectful relationship instead of, you know, what tends to be more of like a, uh, a pushing around relationship. So um, we developed these relationships and and have built out, you know, three, four, 500 people on the labor kind of construction team. And then we got our own GC license and, and had to get, you know, more serious about it. But um, so we have construction managers, we've got superintendents, we've got uh, people who are on site all day that manage exterior projects, people on site that manage only interiors. Um, and we've tried to bring kind of the same way we do management is just more of an institutional feel to um, execution and reporting on a very kind of broken process for for renovations. So when you think about labor in today's market and everybody's like, nobody's working, nobody's working. Um Maybe, I mean, maybe this is, it's not a political statement, but I'm sure you're an advocate for, as I am, is like, we need to let people mm -hmm. come across the borders yep. and work. Yep. Um, what are you experiencing right now? And both like actual what's happening on the ground versus if you were president for a day, like, what do we need to do as a country? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I won't go down the political spectrum. I mean, I, I think, I think we, we royally screwed up our immigration and our rhetoric around what needs to happen to get hardworking, smart, good people in this country. Yeah. Um, I, you know, whether it be labor type people or whether it be, you know, extremely intelligent people here on a working visa, um, you know, we've seen some horror stories around people, you know, being deported back or, you know, their work visa not being renewed. And these are smart people who have a lot to offer yep. America. And I, I just... I'm blown away that, you know, I mean, my, my parents are like, my, my grandparents all came from Mexico. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, everyone you talk to that's had some success in their life, it all seems like it came from some level of immigration. So yep. I think we got to fix it. And I think we got to fix it very quickly. And what are you, but, but today on the ground, are you experiencing labor challenges? Is that yeah. your competitive advantage right now that you no, kind of have this No, I mean, we, we definitely are. I, I'd say it's less on the construction side. Probably, eh, it's on the construction side. You know, we... I think are doing better than most, but we're yeah. certainly not immune. Um, it's also very much on the maintenance side. I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough role to fill right now. Uh, especially I'd say anything in that 15, $25 an hour, any sort of labor force is extremely challenging right now. You know, once you get above that and kind of get into the more executive or, or senior kind of white collar jobs, it seems like there's still a good available talent if you have a good culture. Yeah. yeah. When, when those like 15 to $25 an hour employees that maybe you had pre COVID, do you have any insight as to where they went? Did they take like a higher job? Did they move? Like nobody can give a clear answer as where are these people right now? I know. Now? I, I I think we're underestimating the gig economy a little bit. I think, you know, whether it be Uber driver, favor mm. driver, um, you know, I think a lot of people have gotten creative with just what it means to work these days. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think also you had a lot of investment speculation going on. You know, I, I know a lot of, people that would bet paychecks on crypto and pet, you know, they were following all types of Reddit threads. And, you know, for a lot of these people, if you're getting government stimulus and you're getting, you know, child tax credits and you're getting, you know, your crypto boom and you're getting, you know, you can work your Uber and favor job and you can run a YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're probably doing okay. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I think that's kind of the missing link, but 
you know, I, I don't know what, what really solves it. I think, you know, but I think the supply chain, supply chain and, and all that is, is just become a disaster for most. And, um, I, I, on our end, it's weird. It's a blessing and a curse. It sucks for execution, but it's amazing for what it's done for supply. It's totally brought it to its knees relative to what the demand is for those apartments and single family. So what's your directive right now when you are buying, uh, that's probably one of the benefits of owning 38,000 units is you can buy in bulk. You probably had a warehouse full going into COVID. Do you buy per project and you just have your lists? And so you're just filling the warehouse up anytime you can, or how do you think about, is it project specific? Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, there was a moment in time where we could not get paint from Sherwin Williams. We had to go to all types of paint suppliers and, you know, buy up whatever we could find essentially in the summer of last year. Um, it's gotten a little better. Um, I'd say the purchasing power helps were hopefully at least one of the first calls from, you know, some of our suppliers, but it was a disaster. Um, yeah. you know, and appliances, uh, were no better. I mean, we were moving people in with, you know, old appliances and giving them rent credits and, you know, doing all types of stuff to try to ease the burden. But, uh, I mean, it was nothing short of a total disaster last year and it still, it still really is. But on the flip side of that, like you mentioned, it's been an amazing boon for existing assets. Yeah. Um, I mean, we absorbed 40,000 units in DFW and we only built 23 and this year we're maybe going to get 30 if there's not more delays. And I think we're probably going to absorb close to the same, maybe 32, 35 or 97 and a half percent occupied in most of our Sunbelt markets. Yeah. It's the highest we've ever been. And we cannot get supply and the supply that is coming online is usually, you know, kind of outskirts of town, not really where people want to live. And, um, you know, it is creating kind of this weird dynamic of just, I hate to say perfect storm, but I mean, at least it starts to make sense of why the rent increases are happening. Yep. Um, so you can make sense of it. Okay. When I think of DFW, 30,000, 40,000 units coming on board, or maybe it's 23,000, but we observe 40. Are a lot of the tenants that occupy the buildings that you're buying, call it class B, are you worried about the new class A stuff? Like, are they actually upgrading to this new, is are rents now that close that they would do that? Or So they were, in, um, there was a weird moment in time and during kind of coming out of COVID where, you know, workforce housing let's say into 2020 workforce housing was up two or 3% in rents. Okay. And we saw most of the uh, urban infill stuff that maybe was, you know, three or four years old or coming online was signing, you know, rents 12% below where, where they were a year ago. And so you had this kind of weird, you had this weird increase in workforce housing and you had a pretty massive decrease on the new stuff. Yeah. And so that spread narrowed, you know, for us about 150, 200 bucks. And all of a sudden cap rates became very agnostic to product type. Mm. historically you know it's probably 100 150 bips between you know a to c and somewhere in between and everything was kind of a four cap um and so we started buying up a lot of kind of new stuff cash flow yield um you know urban infill type product that we thought you know we're buying it at a 10 percent, 15 percent rent discount and so just to get back to even you know 20 you're gonna need 20 percent growth and if it goes from there great um so we started buying all that up and i'd say that lasted six to eight months and now that spreads kind of back to a healthy, yeah, 500 bucks or so. Okay. Fair enough. You have three parts of your company. We've pretty much talked about construction, some management. When you own the asset, what do you want your asset managers like focused on specifically maybe during the 
the early days where there's a ton of activity versus now we're into year three and we've kind of stabilized? Like what matters to you when you're talking to your asset managers? Yeah, I mean, everyone has, our asset managers have a lot of authority on the business plan execution. And I okay. think, you know, I think that's important because I think a lot of them truly feel like they are the owner of that asset. I, I don't question their decisions. I question if the performance isn't there, but day-to-day decisions, I'm not going to override them. Um, we've we've kind of built out a training program that that lets these people be the owner of that that asset. And, you know, from a from a day-to-day perspective, you know, they're watching, they're managing kind of a construction manager who's on their team, a director of operations on their team, um, and, and an analyst who's kind of helping support. And on their team, they'll be managing, you know, on the ground, kind of mostly construction in the first 12 months, okay. I'd say, is is the big focus. They're obviously managing the rent roll. Um, they have meritocracy to make decisions, and their budget, their bonuses are all tied in a wise. So they can either hit 100%, and then it goes all the way to 200% as kind of this huge threshold for participation. Um, they also all have direct ownership, either through investment opportunities or ownership uh, in, in our employee uh, affiliate pool. Um, so I built this kind of culture around the asset manager really being the person that makes stuff happen. And, um, you know, so year one, it's all construction and operations year two, it's all stabilization and, and start to focus on return of capital. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's really a time for looking back over year one, what worked, what didn't, um, where are we at in budget and where are we kind of over and under? Um, and then from there, really, how do we get from, you know, that point to a, capital execution and whether that might be refinance and return of equity or an exit. Um, and that's really kind of up to them to present both cases. Yeah. And then they give a, they give an, uh, a, a, a basically they put a memo together and, and advise us one way or the other, sit down and discuss it. And if, if goal is to refi, it's keep on pressing on. And it's probably because we're seeing great growth and we figured out, you know, the plumbing's good and we have great expense management and all these things. Um, or it's, Hey, um, we feel like we had a great pop you know, here's what we're seeing in the market for exits and cap rates. And if we stabilize GPR and lost lease here, you know, we could have this thing ready to go in 2022 months and sell it at a compressed cap. And so that might be the recommendation. And so then, you know, that's what we do. Um, and we question things and we have an IC and we do all that, but, but generally I want them fully executing that business plan within year two, and then they get a transaction bonus. So they're very incentivized to move quickly yeah. Hit NOI targets and get us to an, an event of for capital return, whether it's sale or refi. And then after that, it's pretty easy. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, if if we've done our job and all the capital has been returned from the equity, you know, years three, four, five is just manage yield and cash flow. Yep. Then it's just stay full, keep rents with market. You know, turn as needed. Make sure we don't accrue any deferred. But you know, the the hot and heavy is the, the two year cycle. Yep. And when you're refinancing, it's usually going to be with a Fannie Freddie, some mm-hmm. type of government-backed loan. Yeah, yeah, we we do we do a lot of kind of CLO product going in, um, you know, bridge financing, kind of three one one or a five year term full IO. Usually about 75 percent of cost. Um, so we'll go in do that, and then on a takeout, we'll tend to do like a seven or ten year floating rate loan with Freddie or Fannie. Usually Freddie's better on their floating product, so we go Freddie. But um, usually that returns somewhere between fifty to hundred plus percent of capital. I don't mean to ask the dumb question. What is the difference between Fannie and Freddie? Like, is there a big difference? There's not really a huge difference. They have different metrics on how they 
well, A, they have different lending limits a little bit. Um, some of them have different affordability kind of you yeah. know, internally, but um, a lot of them just really have different metrics they use to size various loan products. And so, you know, some days Fannie's better than the other mm. and some days Freddie's better than the other. Traditionally, I think Fannie's better on fixed and Freddie's better on floater. Um, but all they're doing is literally lending, they're managing their lending cap. Yeah, yeah. So if their production through the quarter is over kind of through year, they think they're going to be over on lending, they start to pull back and push spreads. And then as lending dries up, they start to get more aggressive. And then maybe the other one starts to kind of do it. I mean, it's kind of a silly back and forth. Um, yeah. They should just merge the two if they could. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Last kind of question on execution. You you buy a deal, you have bridge loan, which gives you money to do the construction, money to kind of operate. You you kind of have a race to the clock to get to that two-year window. And maybe it's the same in everything. In industrial, it's like once we get to that NOI number, that's when we start the conversation with banks. Mm-hmm. Multifamily with so many units, it seems like it's just a little more fluid. But is it as simple as like, hey, we are trending to this multi, uh, this NOI number we know it's going to take us 60 to 90 days to get the loan closed, like kick the process off. Is yeah. there something that, is there yeah, I mean, I think that that's, goes off? I think that's what makes you a good investor is having that ability to kind of say, I I feel the value that's been created and I can see the trajectory so that, you know, let's start the process. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I mean, that can be the difference between, you know, a gross 20 or a gross 15 is just being to the process, you know, six months earlier than the other you know, operator. Um, and so we're constantly evaluating that really on a month to month, you know, we have kind of our own internal process for basically stabilized, you know, stabilizing GPR, current GPR, what last 30 rents are, push that, you know, and, and then kind of give a kind of spit out a bunch of different NOI scenarios. Um, and then you kind of look at it and say, well, what's that one doing and why? And then you start to kind of deep dive and say, okay, that's, that's the one to do. But yeah, we're, we're very much, you know, it's it's like I said, it's not rocket science. If you're signing renovated lease at sixteen hundred bucks and you're doing twenty a month, you pretty much can figure out, okay, three more months I'll have X amount of NOI and I just gotta fill it up and we'll be good. Is there anything from a CapEx standpoint when you a lot of I know a lot of guys that are getting into the industry probably call you like, where do most people in today's market just totally miss the, the boat? I'm always blown away at how much people spend on their CapEx. Yeah. Um you know, we've done a couple projects like helping people out and, and we'll do stuff for, you know, literally half of what their budget was or what they're used to seeing. We've got equity partners that, you know, require us to uh, to do stuff maybe at 20 a door and we get it done for 12 a door for the full rehab. Um, so I think there's a lot of just kind of excess in the construction market. Um, you know, I think a lot of people miss the boat on ability to really drive rents while maintaining occupancy. A lot of people you know, it really is a very delicate balance um, to maintain yield, to not build bases because you're cash flow negative, um, and to be able to also drive massive in-place rent growth is a challenging thing to do. And a yeah. lot of times people get behind the eight ball so that their growth isn't slow because they're scared of occupancy. And I think that's where people mess up the most is they have this fear of being 87% occupied or 88. Yeah. It seems like to them they're failing, their NOI sucks, it's not a great deal. But we want, I mean, if the investor will let us, usually if we have control, we're going to 82, 85 as fast as we can. Okay. Um, you know, and all I want to do is just go down fast, up fast. Yep. I don't, the worst thing I think people can do is the slow burn of slow growth. Yep. And, you know, you're stuck in, in no man's land because 
you're, you haven't generated you haven't generated enough NOI value to actually do a capital event. So now your investors are upset, and and you also you know so now you feel like you have to do it, but now your IRR is crushed. So then you start building bases later in the game, and it's just it's just a, a bad plan. Okay. All right. I want to spend the the last kind of segment on kind of what's going on today. Uh, let's just talk about your portfolio. Are you still going after the exact same stuff that you always were? I've noticed, and maybe we can talk a little bit, that first project you did nine or 10 years ago, that's probably up for a value add again. Yeah, again. it still has the same damn colors. I saw it just sold. <laughs> I'm like, someone needs to paint that thing. It's ugly. How are you refreshing your portfolio? Like what matters to you based on what you know in the market today? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's crazy is what a 2012 product looks like compared to 2022. Um, and so I think we've updated what our, our term, what, what value add means. You know, we bought a 2014 deal in Charlotte in kind of what would be considered the North Park Mall area of, of Charlotte. Um, and we're going to do a full gut rehab of the interiors. And it was built great for the time, but it's all browns and kind of, you know, dated. And, and we're getting great rent pops out there. Um and what I've figured out quickly is from a scalability and resource perspective, it's incredibly challenging to scale a super heavy distress value add platform. Yeah. You know, what we used to buy just by default because no one would pay attention to us was, you know, 60s, 70s stuff in rough areas. Um, and, you know, we were really good at that. Uh, we were good at figuring out how to add value. We were good at fixing stuff for cheap uh, and, and moving the meter. But, when you start buying deals like that in Jacksonville and then sh and then Charlotte and then Florida and up and down the I-4 corridor in Florida, and then you've got some stuff in Dallas that's hairy, and then you know Houston that's hairy, your team and your resources become extremely stretched, and they're very it's very stressful, and you're not usually in a very good cash flow position for 24 months. Like I said, you've got to tank occupancy, you got to get comfortable that you're going to bleed some cash, and it's going to be a little painful for a while, and you got to have confidence that you'll come out of it. Um, and so what I quickly figured out was, you know, if we want to be 50, 100,000 units in, you know, call it 10 years from now, um, we've got to kind of figure out what's what's truly scalable institutionally into 15, 20 markets. And it's really it's really getting, you know, more into that kind of 90s, 2000s product type. I kind of started studying the top 10 owners of, you know, who's built the best platforms. They weren't buying the stuff we were buying. You know, you look at the Forbes 500 you don't find a lot of sixties real estate syndicator deals on there. You know, it's like, it's all very, <laughs> you could have been the first. Yeah, I know. I was trying. Uh, and so it's like, you just kind of look at it and say, okay, these guys and girls are all figuring out how to do it on a very institutionally scalable scale. And so that's, that was what we focused on was moving that product type. And, and it's, it, it you know, you have a lot less CapEx needs. You have a lot less deferred. You can find good employees and tenant and your tenant base is just a lot less rough on the, on the asset. So like on that deal in Charlotte, you're taking, you know, the 2014 product, you're modernizing it to today. Is it the same people that's still leasing it? Or are you, are you attracting like a new tenant that would have never been there before? on a project like that. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, I think what you're doing is creating the value for, so in that deal specifically, you know, let's call it in place rents of 1500. We're moving them to 1800 and new supplies delivering at 2100. Okay. So that's what we want to be. We don't need to necessarily compete with new supply. We just want to be the well-located value play. Yep. Um, and so I don't think 
you know, I think I think probably 30, 40% of those tenants stay there. They take the upgrades, and then the rest is you're finding a, a new tenant that's looking for the value play. Yep. Um, and I would I would say you walk into our units on something like that, and you you wouldn't know the difference of whether it was new built or not. I mean, it's 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 got all the you know smart apartment technology packages. It's got the wine locker. It's got the stand up showers. It's got the kind of kitschy you know uh, uh, closets and all that stuff. So. You know, I think that strategy works well. Yeah. We've talked a lot about CapEx, but we live in 2022. Is there any tech that like has kind of, you're actually like, this is pretty badass. There's been a lot of stuff that comes out that yeah. doesn't seem like it's going to work. Besides paying rent online and all that stuff, I don't count that. But is there anything that's come out that you're like, this is pretty awesome? Yeah, I, we've had a tough time with it. I mean, you know, back to Adam, you know, he and I started a smart apartment technology company, you know, five, six years ago. And sold it to Vista Equity Group. Um Zigo. Probably, yeah, Zigo probably three years ago. Uh and then Thanks, Zigo just sold it again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> uh and you know that was at the time where, you know, you weren't seeing as much of it and it quickly became, I'd say by twenty eighteen, extremely crowded. Uh and to this date I honestly have not seen anything that I think is like super mind blowingly cool. Um, you know, fetch is pretty cool from like a delivery, you know, package uh, service. Um, I think that's an interesting concept and I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges we've had. Yes. Go on that for a second. Yeah. Like your delivery rooms must look like. Well, I mean, we had an, we have some 800 unit properties that, I mean, you, you would, I need some industrial space from you to Let's do manage it. it. It's like, it is insane. And so it's genius on, on the fetch part is like, okay, we're going to basically become a centralized storage system for in-house delivery. And so all your packages come here and then we hand deliver them you know, to these complexes for, for a small fee and the tenants love it. Um, and so that's kind of blown up and an interesting, they have an interesting tenant technology app that they use. Um, you know, I think rent and all that kind of stuff is basically just going to go to the cheapest execution. I don't think there's anything like mind blowingly cool there. Yeah. Um, the smart apartment technology packages, I, we get good rent. I mean, so it costs us 12 bucks or 15, uh, I'm sorry, cost us, usually about 12 bucks a month to operate kind of the cell service and stuff that goes along with it. And it's usually about a thousand bucks to install it, but we get a good pop on it. It's usually 35 to 40 bucks from the tenant. Yeah. So they like it. I mean, it's, it's what you'd expect. You can control it from your phone, unlock your apartment. If someone's there to see you and you're not home yet or control your AC and thermostat. But I'd say a lot of stuff is big on promises, poorly delivered. Yeah. And that's still kind of just what we're working through. So we've hit the brakes. But are they all like, if I'm if I go to rent uh, at one of your spots, do I need to download like a fetch app, a light turn on app? Do I have all these different apps, or is it is it now being aggregated into one kind of box, one system? Just, yeah. Some people are trying. It's you know, I mean, that's kind of what like Resmin and RealPage are all basically buying up these companies is to say like we're the one stop shop. Yeah. Um, problem is it just it never works out that way yeah. um and you know i i think we're tired of being the guinea pig yeah. um and so we we've kind of just said let's focus on what's important to the tenant and it's not having the latest and greatest ai package and technology i mean a lot of a lot of what's important to these people is a good clean safe home yep um that's affordable for them so yeah. we gotta we almost have to shave it down a little bit all right there's a, a few more. This this one you're you're not leaving. Uh, this was like the the big one. Um, <laughs> you have raised deal by deal forever. Mm -hmm. You've you've bought over six billion dollars. So you've probably raised over a billion and a half dollars of equity at this point. Deal by deal. Yeah. 
freaking grind. And then the alarms start ringing that Scott is raising a fund. <laughs> what? Why are you raising a fund? Yeah, uh, you know that's a great question. I <laughs> I ask myself that every day, but uh, I guess I'm just a total glutton for punishment. But it's the the reality is we look over our company and say we we have control and vertical integration of everything that touches the apartment complex that we operate in, except for the most important aspect, which is our capital. Yeah. Um, and it becomes apparent when it's not available, how imperative it is to have. Um, and so, you know, it, it just kind of hit me, you know, five years ago I said, well, maybe we should do it. You know, uh, it's, it's, it would be nice to have. And I'd say fast forward to today and it's got to have, if we want to grow the way we want to grow. I mean, we did, I raised 700 million of equity last year. Yeah. And you know, it's a freaking beating, uh, to do that over 27 deals that we bought last year. Okay. But you're like, Hey, uh, Sanjay, Hey, Pennybacker got another deal. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Okay. Until, until, uh, I won't say the name, a Canadian life insurance company is two weeks from closing on a deal that I have, you know, $3 million hard okay. earnest money on. And they call me and say, actually, we aren't going to do this deal. Um, but we will do a super pref structure. Um, you can put in 15% of the equity. You'll be subordinated to our equity and also subordinated to the loan we get a minimum 15 return and then you get all the upside. What a great deal. Uh, well, that's great, but no, screw yourself. Yeah. And, and we've had that happen a few times. Okay. Um, and you know, it's like they knew they had my balls in a vice. They knew they had me against the wall. They knew closing was coming up in a week or two. We had a lot of earnest money out. Then it's less important about the money. It's, it's our reputation, right? We win deals and we get deals awarded to us because we never retrade. We always close. We close on time and we just get stuff done. And so for them to try to pull that, you know, it's just one of those things. And it happened a couple times. And it's just, you know, you you it, what it makes you realize is great partners are are so hard to find. And when you have them, you treasure them. Um, but you know, when that happens, and you've got nine other deals going, and other stuff starts happening, and lenders are having issues, you just kind of realize like, I know it's a beating to have fun, and and I probably don't make as much money on a deal by deal basis, but it's a smaller slice of a bigger pie, and it gets us to where we want to be, which is not just you know buying forty fifty million dollar deals at a time, but we really want to become a massive capital allocator in multiple markets and and be able to institutionally build up an investment team. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you 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 need those uh, fund management fees and all the stuff that it generates to kind of help do that because it's expensive. To, uh, to speak to and in, in a specific where you can say pound sand, I'm not telling you, but do you? Think about the fund as I'm going to try and achieve similar to like syndication economics at a fund structure. Like, are you still able to get all the goodies that you like? No, I mean, are there give and takes. So the other, and I'll I'll also speak to this fund equity and fund you know management really creates enterprise value that you don't have doing deal by deal or some sort of syndication shop. Um, you know, no one cares about your act fee. No one cares about your construction fees. No one cares about your management or asset management. But as soon as you put equity management on there, it becomes the most sticky institutional attraction. I mean, you see it in TPG going public. You see it in Bridge Investment Group going public. These things trade at 23, 20, 23 times earnings uh, on mm -hmm. EBITDA. 
Um, and it's all it all gets wrapped up into one, but it doesn't matter at all until they have the equity management fee because it's paid before the damn ser- loan service sometimes. Right. And so they know that's sticky cash flow. And it's also something that's sticky enough to build a massive operation around um, and to continue to scale. Um, but back to the syndication question on just, you know, how you structure those deals. You know, when we raised money, it was a 10 for a 50-50. Yep. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and it's never going to happen in an institutional world. So now we're at 80-20 over 9 with some catch-up in the 9. So we're basically, you know, you know, one and a half equity management fee, which is pretty standard. And then, you know, 20 points of the profit. Um, and, and, you know, that was hard to swallow at first. I think, fortunately for us, I'm in a position where I'm less concerned about making a bunch of money on one deal. And I'm trying to figure out how do I build true company enterprise value over a 10, 20, 30 year period and build something that can rival, you know, Starwood, which would be, you know, uh, I know people always, who are you looking up to? It's, I mean, you know, Blackstone's cool and all. They do a bazillion things. I think Barry Sternlicht and what Starwood's built is just, you know, if you could just replicate replicate that, I, I think he has done a phenomenal job of becoming a true institutional real estate private equity leader across, you know, many, many different forms of, of real estate and aggregating up to, you know, I think $110 billion of AUM these days. Barry, if you're listening to this, yeah, and, Barry, I, and I know on. you are, call Scott. Uh, Fan of the fort. That's right. So you are... So it's fair to say you're just level it's you're leveling up the company and how you raise your capital and your capital stack is what what I'm seeing is one you can you can buy what you need to buy move quick when you want to move but you're building a new type of value for your company that didn't exist before and maybe the trade-off well, and promote yeah yes and it's a new offering and opportunity for our employees and yep. you know nothing gets people more excited and, and uh, uh, motivated than new forms of growth you know, whether we're hiring out senior fund accountants, we're hiring treasury management, we're hiring, you know, new investment teams. We want to be in different regions within the investments. Uh, you know, hopefully we can we can start to talk about open-ended core plus vehicles. Um, we can look at, you know, pref equity, bridge, bridge debt for, for multifamily. Um, these are all long-term kind of thought processes, but you don't really get there by saying, hey, I'm going to give you money and then I'm going to go figure out how to raise it 200 grand at a time. Yep. You have to be able to call, you know, I'll never forget, but one of our partners uh, in D.C. who's been doing this, you know, 12 years now as a fund manager, you know, he the guy started a company 10 years before that and and then started this company as a private equity fund manager. Um, and they're about the same size as us. They're, you know, 20 plus thousand units or so, but they had a portfolio um, that needed about 450 million of equity. And in nine days called, you know, Put 300 million from the fund, and within nine days, got 50 million from three more investors for 150 million bucks from Nystor's pension, you know, Cal, whatever, um, and Texas teachers. And all it took was a investment memo and a phone call. And you know, that is yeah, that is pretty powerful when you're trying to build a company and find good deals. Is there something if you're going after a billion dollar deal? And, and I, 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 I'm pretty much asking a question I think I know the answer to, but when you're going after a $60 million deal or a hundred, that's a big number for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Is there, a, I've never gone after a billion dollar deal. I think you have. What do you get asked at the billion dollar table that you don't get asked at the 50 or hundred million? Or is it just like, do you really have the money? Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, we, we closed a nine pack last year that was right at 950 million. So, um, 
you know, it was one equity group and they basically put their entire fund on it. It was, you know, two, 280 million or so of equity. Um, I'd say that honestly, you know, it was a lot of earnest money. <laughs> it was a little painful on that end. Um, and I, I'd say that the, 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 what was, what was amazing was what felt like the biggest transaction of my life. Blackstone was our lender. I mean, they closed it like 30 days as if it was just like falling out of bed. I mean, they weren't even excited about it. I was like, can we get a closing dinner on the books? Is somebody going to answer my email? I mean, it was, it was insane. But what it taught me was, you know, no matter how big of a fish you might be in your little pond, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep. And the more that you can challenge yourself to just think bigger and, and not be afraid and just go for it, you find that man, there's, there's ways to make this happen. And, you know, it was a huge transaction and it was like, done, move on. And, you know, now we're off to the next challenge. So when I hear your, and, you know, again, I think you're raising what, $200 million fund we're right now? 300, fund one? 300. 300. Okay, but that deal you just did, you raised 280. Yeah. Would you just dedicate a whole fund to one deal or are you going to- Well, it was, a, it was a nine property portfolio. So so our fund has restrictions around, you know, no, no more than 20% allocation in one asset. Okay. Um, so that means $60 million check, obviously, you know, none of these deals that we're, we're right now negotiating a nine property portfolio again, I guess we number nine, Yeah. um, you know, it'd take up about 240 million or so of our fund. I would probably raise co-invest of about a hundred of that. So I don't blow my first fund right out of the water. Right. Um, but that's, that's kind of what you, so there's interesting, what, what happens as you step into this kind of institutional game is now Goldman says, Hey, did you know about our little bucket of V capital over here? Yeah. You know, we, we, we need co-invest opportunities. We can't actually, because of their tax structure with the, the capital, we can't be more than 49% of the LP. Well, that doesn't really work when I'm just trying to like quickly raise money or bring in a institutional fund manager on a one-off. But when I need a co-investor for my fund and they don't need control provisions and they can be less than 50% of the capital. Well, now it's all of a sudden a great married relationship and they've got billions of dollars. Yep. And so, you know, a little $50 million check is like a starter pack. Yeah. And so it just, it just teaches you to think bigger and level up. Um, and, and you know, that, that one, and you know, that one deal, it would have been great. I would have, you know, that's, I'd buy that same deal today with our, with our current fund, even though you know, yeah. it was done the last time. So, so does it matter to you in raising that 300 that you get some big institutional names within that stack? Like you wouldn't want it from 2000 individuals or would you care? You know, we don't, we certainly don't want 2000 people. We are targeting a lot of our family office and endowments, the pensions, you get into a whole nother level of diligence. I mean, I'm filling out 75 page yeah. questionnaires and it's questions you've never actually thought of for your own company. Um, and what you've learned is that a, no one wants a first time fund. So we have a 10 year track record. We've sold 20,000 units, two and a half billion dollars or so of value, 50 gross IRR over, you know, 10 years. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean shit. It's no shit. They say, that's great. Have you seen the new cap rates these days? Probably can't do that again. Can you? Yeah. And it's like, so what makes you special? Why should I give you money instead of the guys that I've been, you know, investing 150 million with, why don't I just give them 200 million instead of you 50? Interesting. So they literally, when I tell you they don't care, they do not care. Well, okay. So what do you so, tell them back? Well, you got to craft a full narrative. You got a <laughs> deep dive. What makes you, you special? And so, you know, what, ha what they care about is 
it's great you're raising a fund. It's great you have a tenure track record and you have a great reputation and whatnot. Come back to me when you're real. And what to them means you're no longer what they call an emerging manager. And that means you need to be over a billion of equity raised to even start the conversation is no longer emerging. Uh, or you need to be into fund four. And so then they can see a track record of how your funds perform because it's a very different animal. But what it's taught me is that you're never big. Don't, if you start thinking you're too big for your britches, just settle down because it blew my mind. You need a billion of equity raised to even have a conversation as not someone who's basically a startup. Well, now, and with, with B-REIT raising two to three billion yeah. a month, like even being a billion dollar fund now is like, what value are you really bringing? Well, what's crazy is I talked to my, my, my fund managers who, you know, are at a billion or a billion two and, and all they're freaking out about is how much money is just being gobbled up by Blackstone and Starwood and, Brookfield and, and those types of groups. And I mean, these people have billion dollar equity funds. So, I mean, they're buying three, $4 billion with leverage. Um, and, and they basically believe that if you're not, if you're not into the two to $5 billion equity fund range within the next three to five years, you're probably going to go out of business because the consultants and the pension and the endowments, they no longer want to mess around with dabbling in a bunch of different strategies with operators. They pick their one group, you make them, you make them 500 million on their $500 million check. They want to give you a billion and they've got so much overhead and, and, and issues with their, you know, the pension system is so screwed up that their pain points are not about, you know, they don't want a 50 IRR. I think they'd probably be fired for not producing it the rest of their lives. If it happened, what they want is someone who can very consistently deploy their capital and beat their, beat their overhead and beat their, you know, unfunded liabilities. That's all they care about. Well, you might have just answered the question. If I asked what your five-year goal is, it's probably to be at your two or five billion dollar. Yeah, I think you know. So we've got three hundred million in this fund. Um, you'll deploy that quick. Yeah, I think it's going to be gone by 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 July or August. So we'll start in the summer, kind of fund two. We're going to go for at least five, maybe six. Um, hopefully, that's when we start to have some institutional money come in. Right now, it's a lot of family office and and some endowment kind of stuff. And then from there, you know, we've got to get to a billion um, yep. because a billion, you know, it's historically a fund. It takes a lot of travel and effort and Zoom calls to raise that money. You know, the consultants want to sit with you 10 times before they commit and there's 50 of them. Um, but then once the money starts and they've checked the box, you know, it's a five person investment team managing, you know, $100 billion. Yeah. So once you're done, you're done. The money starts to flow if you do your job, but getting there is a pain. So we want to get there. You know, I'd say third fund needs to be at a billion and then we can stop fundraising every, you know, nine to 12 months. And that gives us, a, usually you have about a two to three year deployment window. So if we're putting out 350, 400 million of equity or so, you know, and you bring in some co-invest, we're, we're happy there. All right, man, you've gone the distance with me, <laughs> but I got a couple more. I'm not going to. No problem. This, this is a I made one. it all the way out here. Let's it's amazing. Rolling. No, dude, I'm, it's just unbelievable. I said at the beginning, I, you make me think bigger and I already feel like I've learned something new today. Um, that was one of the best answers to why to raise a fund I've ever heard. Well, from someone that's raised over 2 billion, almost 2 billion doing it deal by deal. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things that once you, once I really sat down and mapped it out, I said, I, I, I mean, maybe I should have done it sooner, but, um, you know, and, and I love, you know, I think Elon said this, take your 10 year plan and try to do it in six months Yeah, and you're going to fail, but you'll probably be a lot further than if you'd said, let's make it a 10 year plan. 
Um, and so I give Johnny the finger when, cause at the beginning of every episode, there's like a quote that we guy, start with that. That's the, oh, yeah. that's the that's quote. The, that's the finger quote. All right. <laughs> the, the, the pensions are, uh, the fun guys ask you, you know, I know you did 10 years and you have a gross 51 IRR track record and blah, blah, blah. But why now? Some belts hot money's cheap. You can't build housing quick enough to keep up with demand. The markets that you're in, everybody's moving to. You said the perfect storm. Like, is yeah. there anything out there besides rising interest rates that scare you? Uh, I'm less actually fearful of rising interest rates and more fearful of what the Fed's going to do. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily mean that that means anything about raising rates. I, I 20% of every dollar in circulation was created in the last... Two years, yeah. You know they've they've nine trillion dollars sitting on their balance sheet. We have a we have a tenure that really can't go any lower. We have LIBOR that can't go any lower. We have inflation picking up. You know, I mean, I can make the pitch all day for why I think multi in the Sun Belt's a best investment you're going to find. That doesn't mean that I think anything's bulletproof right now. I mean, I'm, yeah, you know, slightly terrified of what this looks like over the next five to ten years. I argue that you know the whisper of quantitative tightening dropping the Nasdaq twenty percent. Nothing's actually happened. And, uh, you know, crypto's down 50 and NASDAQ's down 20. What happens when we actually start running through this? And, um, you know, I, I'm less concerned about interest rates and I'm more concerned about what happens to that investment demand. You know, what is lurking out there like a, you know, synthetic CDOs, you know, that took down the 08 crisis. That's all stuff that no one actually knows about until it's too late. Yeah. And, and we've had a long bull market and a lot of money made and a lot of people who are speculating, you know, why is Bill Huang worth $10 billion, why is he doing what he was doing? And how many more are out there like that? Because they kind of operate in a shadow market. And that's the stuff that I just think, you know, at some point, it, the chick, you know, it's got to it's got to kind of slow down a little bit. Well, then you got like Evergrande over in China. It's like a $500 billion fund just goes tits up. And yeah. the world, I, I, I said this on, <laughs> on another, and, and you bring this up, it makes me think about it is, I think like in 08 and 09, we didn't have social media. Like, I don't think COVID could have happened pre-social media. Right. 100%. COVID exists because we hear about it a hundred times a day. Now I'm not dismissing that it's right. It's science. a very, yeah. I mean, it's, it's there, but I feel like the just constant communication and, and, and ability of information has really just taken it to like what it is today. So it's like, what is bad news anymore? Like, what is know. the thing that people are like, shit, we're finally scared. I think, you know, we've had just such a, there's, there's so many great books around the federal reserve and what they've done and what they're willing to do. And I keep trying to say like, you know, I learned through COVID don't fight the fed, but at some point you just can't buy up 10% of the, you know, 10, 20% of the financial instruments and assets in America and, and maintain kind of what we've got going. And so I think that's what's caused crypto to become so everyone's such a, such a nut about it is people are concerned about the dollar. They're concerned about currency. They're concerned about inflation. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that's just totally unprecedented. Yeah. All right. Uh, two more, then we'll bring it home. You can answer this or you, or you don't have to. And if, <laughs> and if you don't want to, we don't have to. What I think is really cool about your business is you do it with your brothers. Yeah. That's a really delicate subject. That can go really yeah. right. That can go really wrong. What's your words of wisdom for how to build a solid family business? Um, I think it's setting expectations clearly up front. Yep. 
Um, I think it's also understanding what those responsibilities will look like. Um, you know, my brothers, I did not purposefully hire them. You know, the first one I did, uh, Mark, who's was really my first employee. Um, and he got a nice offer from a consulting company when he got out of tech with a finance major and his in-laws basically told him, actually did tell him, don't take that job with your brother. You know, he's running like a Ponzi scheme or something. So <laughs> like literally don't do it. Like, you're with our, you're with our, our daughter. You need to go get a nice little consulting job. So he took it with me and, uh, I mean, he's been such a key component of just everything we've built. He's, he's our managing director of asset management construction. And so, you know, everything that happens after closing or through closing even is falls on his plate. And so yeah. he has built out an amazing platform. And he, what I realized all about my, my brothers, especially was a lot of their strengths were a lot of my weaknesses. Yeah. Um, you know, Mark brings a lot of organization skills and execution that, you know, my big ideas and just kind of run around like a crazy person, they don't really translate to real life sometimes. So He's done a great job of that. And then, you know, it's like one of them, I know he's extremely financial and, and analytical and he, I knew he'd be great in this role. And so you put him there. And then I knew the other one was, you know, had a different set of skill set. And so I think if I tried to force them into the wrong roles, it could have imploded. Yeah. What we figured out was put people where they're successful and you don't get any sort of special, you know, and if, and, and basically what I told him straight up was, it, they know this, but if I ever heard, you know, oh, I'm his brother, or oh, I'm, the, I'm a family member, I, you'd be fired immediately, and, you know, there's not going to be hard feelings about it. And if you want to cry about it, then go cry about it, but we got a business to run. And yep. what's great is that all of them recognize that. Yeah. And having brothers and someone you can trust and someone you can make money with, yeah. you know, that's something that I think a lot of people don't have in life, you know, is celebrating your success with people that you care about. Yep. It's tough to do. And sometimes it can come with a lot of jealousy and emotions with a partner. Maybe that partner doesn't pull his weight. So you're like, hurrah, hurrah, but I should be getting your piece or you shouldn't be a part. So it comes with a lot of emotions and having family who I've got to watch, you know, buy a home, renovate a home, build a home, get married, have children, you know, start investing in things. We all came from nothing. You know, yeah. we shared one bad, one bathroom, um, you know, four boys as teenagers taking 45 minute showers was a disaster. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things like to see where it's all come to has, has been amazing. I think it's one of the coolest things you have going for you. Yeah. It's, I, I it's love it. And we're, awesome. you know, we're big enough to where it is, um, we're not on top of each other. We each have our own kind of roles and responsibilities. Uh, but we all love the same stuff and they would love nothing more to see me become 10 times more successful than I am. And also understand that I take a lot more risk. Yeah. I sign debt. I put up a lot of earnest money. You know, we start. So it's never been a sense of like anyone looking in the other pockets or anyone trying to get what the other had. Yeah. Everyone's just marching to just do the best they can. Yeah. And I think that's. Dude, I think it's awesome. I've watched it. I've, I've, you know, it's, uh, it's super cool. I don't have three brothers, but, um, I don't know. I just think you're getting to live out something pretty special. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. All right. Last question. Uh, the S2 Foundation, you provide, I think you do a lot of charitable work and I, we don't have to go through all of it, but I think you do five college scholarships every year. Yeah. We do um, about 20 grand a kid. Okay. How did this all come to be? What, what's, what do you do? Um, so we, we didn't do it as much in, do it right in the heart of COVID. We actually pivoted to doing 
small business pandemic loans, um, which we could go down, but it was actually amazing because I gave 0% interest rate loans to different companies that needed money for liquidity and all have paid me back totally in full um, through through COVID. Um, so we paid it to that. But prior to that, um, we were doing basically, you know, student would apply. They had to have, they had to write a paper on a business idea. It was always geared towards kind of, you know, entrepreneurial, uh, lower income households. Um, and so a lot of those kids have graduated now and I've helped kind of connect them to different, you know, whether it be like a capital market shop or someone in New York that we know or whoever it may be, it's been so, um, it's just been so special to kind of see putting those people through and, yeah. and seeing kind of the creativity and a lot of them bring their parents. So I'm, I'm, you know, I make them interview. Um, so their kids coming, they got to answer a bunch of kind of questions. They got to fill out apps and resumes. Um, and then the mom's coming and the mom's making them kind of sit up straight and talk. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty fun to watch. And so we, we do the 20 grand it's paid out in quarterly kind of installments for each year. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, it's a, it's a hundred grand a year. It's, it's not much, uh, but you know, I think it's, it's been super impactful and selfishly it's been a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we do a lot of other, I'd say, yeah, really what, what, where the philanthropy and whatever you want to call it, charitable, you know, children have always kind of just, I've always felt, you know, pulled and, and gravitated towards helping and assisting, you know, the, the, what I kind of consider defenseless. If you're not helping and fighting for them, no one else does. Um, you know, it's like, there's a lot of great causes, the environment, the animals and homeless, whatever, but a child, you know, I'm on the board of Dallas Children's Advocacy Center and, and Children's Cancer Foundation. Um, and, you know, the stories, you know, for DCAC, we see about 8,000 kids through Dallas um, for child and sex abuse and physical abuse. And it is something that the more you become involved, it's horrific. But then you start to understand the work that some of these people do and the and, and what um, these institutions provide to their families to get them through, whether it be a court date to prosecute an uncle or whatever it may be. Um, you just start to feel really compelled to give more, do more. Um, and, and help these, these poor kids and families. And so that's where, you know, kind of the kid and the scholarship thing, you know, DCAC and CCF is just, you know, it's really pulled at my, my heartstrings. I love it, man. All right. You're a giant. We're going to do this in 10 more years. Let's do it. Uh, Hold me to it, man. I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's just, it really is just awesome. So thanks for sharing the mic with me today. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. It's been a great time. Let's do it soon. Yeah, we'll do it. Hey everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.